we just do it. But, and this just a bit of a spoiler alert. For most of us, I think we realize the 25th of December is not when Jesus was actually born, right? If you didn't know that, I'm sorry, right? If that busted for you, I'm sorry. Probably not then, right? For the Americans, he probably wasn't born in winter um, when it was snowing. Uh, but we, like, we, we can sort of work it out, and I'm not 100% sure exactly when it is, but it wasn't the 25th of December. The 8th of December. April, okay. April sometime, and you can talk to Howard about how you get there, right? But tonight what we're going to do, even though it's not Christmas, much to my children's dislike and displeasure... We're going to take a look at one of the prophecies, like I said, in Isaiah chapter 9, that speaks about the coming Messiah. And we're going to look at some of the inherent promises that exist in that prophecy for us and how they apply to our lives today. There was a prophecy that was given about 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And we're going to get to unpack that and see just how awesome and amazing Messiah is. So let's read together. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That's it. Here's what it says. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the first half of that verse I'm going to unpack on Christmas Eve. We're going to speak about the fact that a son was given to us, that the government is going to be on his shoulder. But tonight we're going to look at the second half. We're going to look at the fact that his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father. And I want to start off by talking about names. Right? I want to start off talking about names because it says here that his name will be called, his name shall be called. Now, in our Western world, we have names, obviously, Right? We, that's just a given. Right? We, we have names. We know what names are. But more often than not, and I'm just generalizing, so please don't shoot me if this is not you. Right? More often than not, we aren't named for the meaning of our names or the circumstances surrounding our conception or um, uh, you know, birth and, and stuff like that. We aren't normally named according to um, a prophetic word given to us or a season our parents were in when we came along, right? For a lot of us, you might know the meaning of your name, but for most of us, we have no idea that our names even have a meaning, right? For some of us, it was just a way to honor, like for myself, take myself for example, right? My name is Roland, and I was named after my dad's dad. I don't even think my parents knew what the meaning of my name was, but I went to go look it up a long time ago because I'm into that sort of thing. And my name means famed in the land or famous land. How that works out, I don't know, but that's what my name means, right? And it's of French origin. For some of you, you might know the meaning of your name, but like I said, typically in the Western world, we don't really name people because of the meaning of their names. But there are people in our society and there are cultures within our country, specifically like the Tosa culture and the Zulu culture, who name according to meaning or circumstances that surrounded the child's birth or conception. Like, I have a friend in Zitulele, in the trans guy's name, Siavuya, right? And Siavuya means we are happy. And his parents named him that because when they fell pregnant with him, they were happy. And they'd been trying for a very long time. And so when Siavuya came along, they're like, we are happy. Siavuya, there's his name. I think that's amazing. 
I've got another friend. It's a Zulu name. His name's Bongani, right? And that means be grateful. And so also a very similar story. His parents were blessed with him. He's the firstborn son in the family. And you'll know in Zulu culture, that's very, it's a very honorable thing. And so they're like, we need to be grateful. And so they called him Bongani, right? Then there's Tandiwe. Does anyone know what Tandiwe means? Jamesy. No. Okay. Tandiwe is a Kosa woman's name, and it means beloved. And so it's very similar to my son's name, David. Right? Now, for man's and I, we, we specifically chose our children's name according to God's leading and meaning. For us, we wanted the name to sound cool. Right? You've got to be clever about that because right? you've you just got to be careful with your children's name. Right? But for us, we were incredibly intent on giving a strong meaning to our children. So we felt God saying that we need to call our son David. And we had a look at the meaning of that, and David means beloved. Right? And Abigail means the father's joy. And so we inherently feel like there is power in naming somebody something because of its meaning, because when you speak that name over them, you speak in the meaning over them as well. And so a lot of you are going to go research the meaning of your name and hope that it means something cool. But... But this was really, in a sense, the way people named each other in Old Testament times and in biblical times. Names were given to people and names were changed according to the meaning. It wasn't just a cool thing, right? Like nowadays, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, so please, if your name is this, I'm not saying it's ugly. But like we like storm and sky, you know, and uh, what, what is Michael Jackson's name, son's name? Hey? Blanket. What? Okay, so. Northwest. Okay, so like we have names which don't essentially inherently have any meaning, but they might be special. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, not knocking a name. I'm just saying that those don't inherently have any meaning behind them. But in biblical times, people were named because their name had meaning. Right? And so examples in Scripture. Eve's name, biblically speaking, Eve meant the mother of all living things, right? When Eve was given that name, it was because she was going to be the mother of all living things. Abraham was Abram and became Abraham, and that means father of multitude or the father of nations. And, and, and the idea of a name and the meaning of the name was that often it would tell you something about the person's character, character traits, what they were like, or circumstances concerning their lives, and that's why so often in Scripture we see God renaming people or people renaming themselves or people renaming people because God is big into names and the meaning of names. I think there is something significant about that. And if you're a parent and you didn't really think about the meaning of your child's name, I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying. I think God really does take into account the meaning of people's names because there's something about that when we speak it over them. Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. Peter means rock or stone. If I were Peter, I would go with rock, right? He changes, he changes Jacob, which, meant, which means to supplant or to overreach. He changes Jacob to Israel, and Israel means to wrestle with God or to struggle with God or may God prevail. And you'll know the story of Jacob when he wrestled with God. And he was like, "You, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then he wrestled with God from dusk until dawn. And essentially at the end, God won but touched Jacob's hips so that he had a limp for the rest of his life to remember that he wrestled with God. And God blessed him, but he changed his name. Right? Then Sarai, Abraham's wife, becomes Sarah. 
Sarai meant quarrelsome or contentious, and you'll know the trouble that she had with Hagar. She couldn't fall pregnant and doubted God, and you can imagine she was quite upset about that situation. But then God renames her and says, no, you are called Sarah, which means my princess. Or princess, God renames her. And so biblically speaking, names and their meanings are important to God. And we see that evidently when we look at the picture of the Messiah and the names that are given to him, which are also known as the throne names of the Messiah, when we look at chapter 9 in Isaiah. It's a passage that says, and he shall be called, and it's speaking about the coming Messiah. It's speaking about the King of Kings to come. It's speaking about this baby boy that's going to be given. And instead of these being the literal names of the Messiah, they are more character attributes and qualities about who he is. You know, we have a saying where you say someone made a name for themselves. We're not actually saying that they made a name like went and built a name for themselves. It's more a reputation that we're speaking about. And so these names that are given, these, these kingly names, these throne names that are given to the Messiah are more about his reputation than they are actual names. It's important to note that they speak about his character and describe what he's coming to do for us. Right? So that's what I want to unpack tonight. And, and hopefully tonight as we do that, you'll get a deeper and greater love and reverence for Jesus. We can love Jesus, but we can always love him more. And I pray that God, by his spirit through the word, would stir up in you a great love for the Lord as we look at these four throne names. And so here's what's essentially, according to Isaiah, so amazing about this coming king. Right? Number one, he's going to be called, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. Now, what sometimes has happened is people have interpreted that or translated it into two separate words, wonderful and counselor. And for me, it doesn't matter whether you separate them or or join them. Jesus is both wonderful and he is a counselor. But I think it's more accurate to put them together like a lot of people do and go, he's a wonderful counselor. But you read that and I think for me, what this means for us and what's so significant about this is that I'm sure, I mean, you can all attest to this, that at some point in your life, some point or another, you've been given bad advice, right? Which has had like seriously bad consequences. Anybody never been given bad advice, right? I, th- I think sometimes we've given bad advice and we've been on the receiving end of bad advice. And chances are, when you received it, and you listened to it, or you dished it out, and the person you dished it out to acted on it, the consequences were not really good. At very least, they were irritating and frustrating. I know some people who've been given some bad advice about tax, right? Uh, and, and, and they tried to pay less tax, but ended up having to pay a whole heap more, right, on some not-so-good advice. But whether we've received it or dished it out, the point is this, bad counsel leads to bad consequences, you see, when we, when we typically think about a counselor, we think about somebody who's professionally trained or medically trained. We think about them sitting on a big chair and us lying down on the couch, sharing our problems, right? And essentially self-counseling while they sit there going, yes, tell me more about this, right? And I'm not saying that that is a bad or illegitimate form of counseling, but that's not the type of counseling this counselor does. It's not the type of counselor it's referring to. What it's saying is essentially we're all counselors, Right, because we all give counsel. 
We all give answers and share opinions. And so when people come and ask you for something or ask you about something and you share your opinion, in a sense, you're counseling them. If you lead them or guide them in any direction, essentially, you're counseling them. And we've all experienced blessing in that way, but also some really terrible consequences because of bad counsel. The reality is we get it wrong sometimes. Even professionals get it wrong sometimes. And here's why we get it wrong. Because we're not perfect. We're sinful. We don't know all the answers. We're not perfectly wise. We don't have perfect life experience. We're not perfectly knowledgeable. We don't know the person inside and out like God knows them. And even in our own lives, we bring counsel to people and advice to people and wisdom to people, as God says we should do. But we do it sometimes while we're still wrestling with the very problem we're counseling people through. And so in a sense, it becomes the blind leading the blind. And, and sometimes we're unwise as to who we go to for counsel. And this is all inherently a problem because we are inherently sinful. And I think that's why God's Word says we need to be very careful about who we go to for for counsel, and how we need to be incredibly careful when we dish out advice and dish out wisdom. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, doesn't take advice from wicked people. Because wicked or even well-meaning people are sometimes going to give bad advice, and when you listen to that bad advice, it can be catastrophic. If you think about it, even the original fall of man was as a result of bad counsel. Satan got Eve caught up in some hectic psychoanalysis where he said to her, hey, did God really say? She got thinking like, no, no, God didn't really say that. He did say this. And Satan was like, no, you sure? You won't really die. Let me just counsel you in this. Let me just tell you this thing quickly. He, he just doesn't want you to have this thing because if you do, you're going to be like him. And so there's this like analysis paralysis that happens and there's a psychoanalyzing questioning of God's character because of the wicked counsel of Satan and the results are what they are. Right, but in the same way as we fell to wicked counsel, so we're going to be redeemed by godly counsel. In the same way that we fell to the counsel of Satan and so ushered in a season of death and destruction, so we're redeemed by a wonderful counselor. This is the good news for us. What do we do when we can't necessarily go to a perfect person like our moms or our dads, because even they get it wrong sometimes, or our best friend or the teacher or some sports coach that you've had who've been friends with for forever and given you good advice but sometimes still get it wrong, can sometimes make us feel a little bit like a claustrophobic that we can't go anywhere to get the answers to life. Here's, here's the thing that's wonderful for us. You can go to Jesus. That's, that's what's wonderful about this. And why can you go to Jesus? Well, because he's perfectly wise. He's perfectly perfect. He's perfectly knowledgeable. He is a wonderful counselor. And that word wonderful doesn't necessarily mean the wonderful the way we do it. Like, oh, that was a wonderful meal. Or, oh, that I had a wonderful time. No, wonderful means supernatural, awe-inspiring, unbelievable. It leaves your jaw on the floor type thing when you see it and behold it. He is a supernatural, godly, awe-inspiring, perfect counselor. And he doesn't just counsel us in our problems. He counsels us in how to love God, in what God desires for us. He counsels us 
perfectly, he tells us, perfect truth all the time. And every single thing he shares with us leads to life and godliness. Everything he shares with us leads to a greater and deeper intimacy with him, into greater obedience. There is nothing Jesus will tell you that is not pure, that is not holy and godly, and for his glory and for your benefit, whether it be here or in eternity, there's nothing that Jesus will share with you that isn't out of a pure heart for you because he knows you intimately. And that's why he's the wonderful counselor. And you can go to him anytime. And I, I, I get the heart of Terry, Terry Besson, John's, John's wife. You'll know her. She's always on about prayer. And I speak to young people all the time. I counsel them all the time in seeking Jesus. Why? Why do we need to seek Jesus in prayer and in his word? Because he's the wonderful counselor. He's the one with the answers to life's questions. Right? I am not. John is not. Howard is not. None of the pastors are. We do not hold perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge. We can share as best we can with fear and trembling with you before the Lord. And I think we're meant to do that with one another. But ultimately, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's the one who understands. Isaiah says that even the deepest darkness is as light to him. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts above our thoughts. He's the wonderful counselor. Jesus came and imparted the deep things of God to us. He counsels us about what life is really about, to love God and to love others. In Colossians 2, 3, it says that in Christ are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Howard spoke this morning about looking at Scripture and understanding Scripture in its context, but then realizing sometimes there is another meaning and a deeper meaning to what you're reading. And he used the analogy of where's Wally, and you've got to find Wally, any of those things where you've got to look for Wally on a piece of paper, right? And sometimes you've got to look for Jesus in the Scriptures, and he's there. And I think the more you stare at Jesus and the more you know about Jesus, the greater you see. The greater you see him and the more you love him and the more you appreciate him, and the more you know you actually need him. In 1 Corinthians 1, 24, it says that he is the wisdom of God. In Matthew chapter 11, 28, it says, Jesus says to every one of us, come all you who labor and you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because when Jesus speaks to you, he speaks words of life, and it gives you rest in your body, it gives you rest in your mind, and it gives you rest in your soul. Sometimes, I don't know about you, you can go and speak to people and you walk away, they're wanting to have been encouraged, but you feel like you're in the deepest pits of hell after a conversation with some people because they're just so morbid about life and things. If it's not Eskom, then it's government. If it's not government and Eskom, then it's SAA. If it's not SAA, then it's taxis. If it's not taxis, then it's burning down trains in schools. And those things are all bad. If it's not that, then it's the water crisis and how much levies are and how much you pay for electricity, you know, even though you're not getting it. And you know, all that sort of stuff. And how everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And that all, ha but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we don't live for this world. And I think we lose that perspective sometimes. And instead of going to the one who we should really be going to, we try and get encouraged by men, but men, we're broken. And Jesus is redeeming us. He's the wonderful counselor. Come to him if you're heavy laden. Come to him with your problems about Eskom. 
Come to him with your problems about the country and about the family that you're in and about the struggles that you have. And I don't say that flippantly. I say that seriously. Go to Jesus and let him shed some light and give you some perspective because he's the wonderful counselor. Next thing is this, that he is mighty God. That's the second name. He's mighty God. What I really love about this, we sort of dealt with this in, um, in Hebrews, but what's very interesting to note is, is, that, is that this name, mighty God, the, the word God is, is not the word used for demigods. Um, Moses, believe it or not, was referred to as a God. It says that he was a God to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, if you want to go check it up. Right? says that Moses was like a god to Pharaoh. That, that word God is not the same word in the original that's used for this mighty God. This, this word mighty God in the original is El or El Gabor, right, which is only used for Jehovah God and literally means hero God or warrior God. It is only ascribed to God himself. And here's what's amazing about that. Isaiah is establishing the deity of Jesus right up front. Right, this really sticks like a fishbone in someone's throat who's trying to disprove or who denies the deity of Jesus. You just can't get around this. Isaiah is going, Jesus, the Messiah to come, this, this baby that will be given to us, this boy whose government, who, 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 whose shoulders, upon whose shoulders will rest the government is God himself. It's an absolute affirmation of the deity of Christ. It's none other than God Emmanuel, God with us, who took on flesh, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He let go of his godness and he dwelt amongst sinners. But that's who this God is. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here and what we know to be true from our series in Hebrews as well, if you wanna know who God is, if you wanna see God and know exactly what he's like, his attributes, his qualities, his characteristics, how he would respond to you, what he would say to you in certain circumstances and what he thinks about certain things, you just look at Jesus. You just read the Gospels. You just see Jesus and you see who God is. Look at him. He is God, mighty God, our great God, our Savior. And what's more, and what I really love about this name as well is the fact that he's El Gabor, mighty God, warrior God, hero God, is that it conjures up imagery of warfare and battle. Right? And I love that about our God. I love the fact that Jesus is the captain of heaven's armies and that one day when he comes back again, you just got to read book of Revelation chapter 11. Right? It is amazing. But Jesus is coming back again. He's a rider on the white horse and the armies of heaven are following him. He's the captain of heaven's armies and he's coming back to do some serious business, right? But what Isaiah was saying, the reason why he calls him mighty God is because Jesus fought the most decisive battle ever. Better and more decisive than the battle of Gettysburg, if you know your history, or D-Day on the beaches of Normandy and Omaha greater than the battle of World War I and World War II, greater than any battle that has ever been fought, Jesus fought when he went to Calvary. He fought the titanic forces of sin and Satan, death and brokenness. And then he rose victorious and what stands as a monument and a memorial 
to his victory is an empty tomb and the fact that day in and day out, Jesus is restoring people to him. That the church is still alive, that he's ruling and reigning, and despite the enemy's attempts to break it, Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He's our mighty God. He's won that battle for you. And here's the promise. Here's the promise of him being mighty counselor or wonderful counselor. You can come to him at all times and he will tell you truth and grace for your goodness or for his glory and for your benefit. The fact that he's mighty God, the promise is this, that the victory has been won, that sin has been broken, death has been conquered, and when you come to him, you can have eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins. We are saved because of the victory of Jesus. If that doesn't get you excited about Christmas and why we celebrate Jesus, nothing is going to. But that really encourages me and stirs me up. It's the reason why I love this season because I get to serve a mighty God. He's my wonderful counselor. And the next name that is given is Everlasting Father. Now this is confusing for some people because Everlasting Father, isn't Jesus the Son? Isn't there the Holy Spirit and then Father God? Isn't it three in one? And the answer is yes. Does this mean that Jesus is the Father and the Father is Jesus? No, it doesn't mean that. Jesus is Jesus, the Son. The Father is Father, the Father, and the Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And they are all God in one. One God, three persons. We'll talk about it another time. But that's what we believe our God to be. So what does this mean? Right? We might ask the question here, like I said, does this mean that Jesus is God the Father? No, it doesn't. What it is saying essentially is this, that Jesus is the Father of something. And Isaiah specifically is referencing eternity and our salvation. He is the Father of our eternity. In other words, He is the one through whom eternal life is ushered in for us. It is through Him that we are able to walk into eternal life. He fathered eternal life for us. That's what Isaiah is saying here. We know in passages like John chapter 1, 1 to 3, and Colossians 1, 16 to 17, aren't going to come up, that Jesus was, is, and always will be, that He is God, that He is eternal. And as the eternal God, he founded eternal life for us and made it possible for us to enter in. So the word father, biblically, can also mean protector. Right? For example, Genesis 45 verse 8, where it says that Joseph was made father to Pharaoh. It didn't mean that he was Pharaoh's father. It just meant that he was protector and, and ruler of Pharaoh's household. And he was second in charge to Pharaoh and ruled over the land under Pharaoh. And so in a sense, Joseph was father to Egypt and father to Pharaoh. In other words, someone who's the head or the founder or the source of something can be called the father of that thing. And so in that way, Jesus is eternal father for us. He's always been, he always is and always will be. And he fathered our eternity. He fathered our salvation. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And so in that sense, he's father. Does that make sense? He's not God the father, but he's the father of our salvation. He's the one who opens the door. 
He's the one who welcomes us in. He's the one who sustains us. He's the father of our faith. And so that's what Isaiah is saying. And then the next thing, the last name that's given is Prince of Peace. I love this one. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and Prince of Peace. What a beautiful name. As we mentioned earlier, biblical names were given with reference to someone's character and the nature of that person. Obviously, not everybody lives up to the name that they're given and the meaning that it carries, but Jesus does. And that's what Isaiah was getting at. He doesn't just have these names, but he is going to live up to the meanings of those names and to the attributes that those names suggest he has. And the one that really for me, it's been such a blessing in my life is the fact that Jesus is characterized by peace. He's not a warring God in the sense that he's going to come at you and he's going to strike you down and he's going to be unwelcoming and unfriendly and unloving. Yes, there's the wrath and the righteousness of God. Yes, our theology has to hold that intention with the love of God. But when someone broken comes contrite before the foot of Jesus, when you come with freedom the freedom that Jesus has given you to, to, into the throne room of God, and you ask for his forgiveness, he willingly gives it. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's a man of peace, a God of peace. His birth was sounded with the words, peace to all men, peace on earth. This peace doesn't necessarily mean, though, outward peace from strife and war and struggle and pain. We know we live in a time where the kingdom has come and not yet. It's coming and has come, but not has, hasn't completely come. We live in that in between where Jesus has come and is coming again. And we do have struggles, but the peace that he brings essentially is peace between God and man. We can have so many struggles in this life, and there will be war after war, and there will be strife after strife. When one thing finishes, another thing begins. Nothing is new under the sun. Solomon says it all just goes round and round. But the most decisive battle you can ever win in this life, the most incredibly important war that is going on right now is not the war for land or power or whatever it is that we fight for. The most important war and the most decisive war you can ever win is the war for your soul, the war for your heart, for your eternity. And Jesus has won that. And there can be a whole bunch of unrest and lack of peace in this world, but the most uncomfortable unrest is unrest that exists in the heart of someone with God, if not redeemed by Jesus. So when Jesus comes, he redeems people. He redeems our hearts to him, and he brings peace despite our circumstances, peace despite our struggles, Peace with men because we learn that other people are made in the image of God and God loves us and he loves them just the same. And so we love our neighbor as God loved us and as we love ourselves. And we love God essentially the way we're meant to love God and we're reconciled to God and Jesus does that. And so he brings peace. In Micah chapter 5 and Zechariah chapter 9, they won't come up again. There's, there's more prophecy about this child, and it says, He will be our peace. He shall speak peace unto the nations. In Ephesians 2, we read that Jesus Christ, when we preach Him, 
sin is done away with. And people experience peace. Peace with one another because God reunites people to each other. He unites us. And peace with God because he reconciles us to God. Jesus truly is an amazing Messiah, an amazing King, the King above all kings, the Lord of lords. He's the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There's nothing that you could say about him. There's no adjective that you can come up with. You can, you can spend your life writing books about the glory of Jesus, and we won't have, enough, have touched a drop of ink in the ocean when all our time is done. And I think one day we'll see that, and we still won't have words to describe when we stand in the throne room of God and we see Jesus face to face. I think sometimes when I speak to our young people about heaven and worship in heaven, they've got this idea that it's going to be this perpetually boring worship time. You know, speak about being able to cry out with the angels and the four living creatures and the 24 elders, day in and day out singing his praise. I think the idea is like, hmm, well, we're going to get to go on walks at least, you know. I think one day, you know, there's that saying, I would rather be a street sweeper in the courts of my Lord then, or something else. There's that saying, right? But being something else fancy somewhere else. I think we're going to realize that even being a street sweeper in the courts of God is far beyond and above all of us because of the glory of Jesus, the wonder of Jesus. What's amazing is we live on this side of the cross. We get to look back and go, oh, it's done. The promise has been fulfilled. I'm going un to unpack that a bit on, on Christmas Eve. But Jesus is the world's finest and final greatest king. His kingdom will never end. It will never stop expanding. He's our rescuer. He's our redeemer. He's the leader we've been looking for. He's the answer to our heart's greatest questions. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is Jesus. We're going to get to worship him tonight. And I'll ask that you'll be able to submit yourself to that king and be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. And just look forward to the season, not because you get to open what you've been looking to open for this whole year that you've been saving up to buy or mom and dad are going to buy for you or you bought for yourself. Enjoy that, but just remember as you unwrap that, that nothing is greater than the gift of the Messiah. Nothing is greater than the king with four throne names. Nothing is greater than the life Jesus has given you and the price that he has paid to redeem you. Nothing is greater. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask us to stand and ask the worship team to come up. Well, Jesus, it is just